He still wasn't wearing a shirt, and there was this gamey odor coming from him. What? Did he actually think this pissy Salinger act was going to scare me off? He was hiding something. I was only half, you know, conscious, but even I could see that. Well, that's when I knew we were done. Yeah, it's pitch black, and we're trapped in the desert with a noted maniac. I mean, what were we thinking? The final chapters of Richard Brown Winters. Chapter one, Bryce. I mean, Richard Brown Winters, the guy created his own genre. I never really believed he was dead, but sure, that was a theory. Six years without a new book? I mean, he must be dead, right? Like, he OD'd and his publisher was covering it up. I didn't give up hope. But if I'm being honest, kind of feel like he abandoned me. Pathetic, right? I mean, his book sold millions, but here's this kid in Dayton, Ohio, thinking he's the one Winters was writing for. But I don't know. Those, those books were my childhood. I mean, they got me through some hard times. And you never outgrew them? <laughs> What's to outgrow? Adventure? Lust? Revenge? A wounded hero overcoming impossible odds? Richard Brown Winters taught me how to live. I obsessed over every detail. How the wind cannons worked, how radioactive the mutants were, approximately how big the desert wasteland was, because Cassio Zook, that's the main character. Cassio had been wandering the desert for a dozen books and still hadn't found his way out. That's where book 12 ended. Cassio and crew had a small desert oasis. All of a sudden they hear a rumbling and look up. And there's like a giant sandstorm in the distance. All seven armies are rushing towards them, ready to erase them from the earth. Six years later, I was still waiting to see what happened. Stuck in a job I hated, in a city I hated. I knew I needed to make a change, but... But there was nothing. No book, no news, just... silence. And then Bunny called. The phone rang, I answered it, and she just started talking. She said she was an agent, probably the most successful agent in all of whatever. Her name was Bunny Rubin. I'd never heard of her. She said, well, I might have heard of her client, Richard Brown Winters. She was Winters' agent? <laughs> That's exactly what I asked her. And she said, well, no, not yet. But she'd planned to sign him within the week. See, Bunny said it was obvious what had gone wrong. These writers, they start out hungry, but then success turns them into, like, monuments, frozen in time, trapped. She saw it again and again, and she was sure the same thing had happened to Winters. He lost touch with his readers. He'd forgotten, you know, who he was really writing for. Which is where you came in. Exactly. Bunny just needed to give a face to those hungry masses desperate for one more book. Her intern had found me on the subreddit. I was, you know, one of the mods. And now Bunny was willing to pay me $1,500 to go with her to Winter's house. It was the kind of call I dreamed of since I was a kid. A Richard Brown Winters? A daring journey into the unknown? And maybe... 
I didn't want to even admit this to myself, but if we could maybe somehow, you know, jar him loose, get him back on track, save him, save myself. But then the, uh, you know, logical part of my brain starts kicking in. You don't just go visit Winters. He hadn't made a public appearance in 20 years. He didn't do interviews. I mean, nobody knew where he lived. Did you tell her that? I started to. I said no one knows if he's in Iceland or Berlin or... But she says, none of the above, and then starts reading out numbers. His exact latitude and longitude. <laughs> he lived in the middle of the Mojave Desert. No address, 50 miles from anywhere. I tried to keep it cool. I said, all right, Bunny, I'll do it, but uh, on one condition. And she said, okay. That's when I realized I didn't have any conditions. I actually would have paid her to let me come along. <laughs> so were you at all suspicious? Of her? Her, the plan, the whole thing. I mean, it all seemed impossible. But then she sent me a plane ticket. And two days later, I was in Las Vegas, waiting for her on a bench outside of the airport. She was an hour late, then two hours. And finally, this dune buggy rolls up and... Jesus. The woman in the passenger seat? I mean, she looks fried. Motorcycle goggles, pink earplugs. She leans out and says, I'm Bunny. Hop in the back. And a guy in full safari gear slides over and sort of pats the seat. And off we went. Into the desert. Who was in the buggy? Oh, well, it was me and Bunny. The driver. Her name was Carla. And the guy in the safari suit, well, turns out he was Bunny's husband, Roger. Apparently, he was like some fancy photographer or something. She told me he was famous for taking pictures of Volvos. I, I think she said Volvos. Or maybe it was Volvos? Anyway, he rolled his eyes whenever we talked about Richard Brown Winters. Meanwhile, the driver sat there playing this screechy instrument, like a vibrating harmonica or something. I heard her tell Bunny she was sure she had at least one or two books in her. And Bunny said, well, how about let's keep it that way? So what were you thinking on the way there? I wasn't really thinking, to be honest. I, I was just getting more and more nervous. I mean, we were a shabby crew. And Winters was known for being cantankerous. I've heard the stories. The one about him running a critic off the road in his car? I heard he mailed him lunch meat or something. No, no, that was his editor. They were arguing about a semicolon, I think. The point is, you do not move to the middle of the desert because you want visitors. Finally, we arrived, just as the sun was going down. His cabin was in a valley of red rock and sagebrush. No sign of life, no lights in the window or smoke coming from the chimney. Just being there, 50 feet away from where he wrote the books, it felt... Look, I want to say holy, so I'm just going to say it. It, it felt like a holy place. I did not want to disturb it. Well, that's why we came there, right? And Bunny was already halfway to the front door waving at us to follow. So I stepped out of the buggy and then her husband, Roger, sighed and came along. The driver, Carla, she just sat there humming into her mouth harp. So Bunny knocks on the door and we wait. Meanwhile, here I am imagining all kinds of scenarios. Finding him dead, him coming out with a gun, him chasing us, but I twist my ankle and I get left behind. 
We become friends. He sees something in me. I remind him of himself as a boy. Yeah, I'm, I'm in my 30s and he's already published two books by then, but I have a kind of innocence, you know, an innocent intelligence. And do I maybe want to move into his guest house? <laughs> Was there a guest house? What? No, just the little cabin. So Bunny knocks on the door again. Still nothing. Her husband took a picture of the doorknob. Bunny frowned at him and then kept on knocking. Boom, boom, boom. Winters either wasn't home or wasn't interested. Then a light came on in the window. And then another light. And then the door opened. And there he was. An old man in muddy jeans, white suspenders, and no shirt. He stood in the doorway for a long, long time, just staring at us with these intense blue eyes. Finally, he says, Congratulations, goddammit! You found me! Now turn around and go back where you came from. Chapter Two, Bunny. I, of course, I'd be honored to be your agent. I, I don't have a contract on me, but I will have one sent. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> what do you want? The interviewer is here for that thing. Oh, okay. Hello. Hi. Oh, you want me to be on mic? This is my first time. Hold on, I'm just, I'm getting caught up. <laughs> thank you. So. Uh, Ms. Rubin. Yeah. How'd you find out where where Winters lived? Oh, well, it wasn't all that hard. One of my assistants searched land deeds and found all of this worthless desert property belonging to an R.B. Winters. Yeah, I guess it was possible that we'd flown across the country and dune buggied 100 miles just to meet Raphael B. Winters, a retired dentist, or Ralph... Bartholomew Winters, <laughs> who killed and ate the last people who came looking. But when you saw him? When he opened that door and looked at me with those foggy blue eyes, the eyes of someone who'd spent years looking for ideas that weren't coming, right away I knew we had our man. So I reached out my hand, Bunny Rubin. How's your response to that? Uh, he looked down at my hand, he, he just stared at it. He said he didn't shake hands, he didn't sign autographs. He wasn't interested in seeing tattoos inspired by his books. He wouldn't name our baby. He wouldn't answer questions about the sexual orientations of his characters. If we were selling something, he wasn't buying. If we were buying something, he wasn't selling. And if we were connected to Hollywood, or, or, or worse, the publishing industry, <laughs> then we could just turn around and be on her merry goddamn way right now. That's what he said. And did you consider leaving? 
Are you kidding? I had to stop myself from laughing. I mean, what? Did he actually think this pissy Salinger act was going to scare me off? I told him I wasn't selling, I wasn't buying, and uh, babies are repulsive. I mean, I can't even be in the same room as a baby. <sighs> no. I told him we might not look like much, but we're here to do one thing and one thing only to save your life. And we're not going anywhere until you at least hear us out. What did he say to that? He looked at us for another beat, finally said, all right, uh, all right, fine. But I hold on to any phones, cameras, pagers. <laughs> uh, anyway, we were in, and I, I gave him my phone, and Bryce did too. Roger, my husband, he stood there with his camera. Winters waited. I knew what Roger was going to say. The camera can't stay, neither would he. The camera is an extension of my body. And that's exactly what he said. Winters didn't even blink. He said, okay, fine, bye. And Roger? What's that? What did he do? Oh, Roger smirked and did this stupid little bow and left. Oh, yoy. Roger and the goddamn Camry still carried it with him everywhere he went. But his last exhibition was like a decade ago. I brought him along because I thought a change of scenery might inspire him. You know, big skies, flowering cactus, a cow skull dripping with symbolism, all that. Thing is... I couldn't care less about the damn pictures. I just knew it was important to him. This was his life. You take that away, and what does he have? And so you were outside the cabin? Right, Winters. He took our phones and disappeared into the kitchen, apparently. The freezer casing blocks the electromagnetic waves. Is that true? I don't know. Maybe. Probably not. <laughs> I mean, it's his party, right? So, Bryce and I stepped into the main room. And I looked around, you know, just to get a sense of this guy's mental state. The house was pretty empty. Table, chair, couch, lamp, chair, fireplace. No books. Nothing on the walls. Just crumpled pages littering the floor. Was he writing the next novel? I couldn't tell. So I whispered to Bryce, now's the time to earn your money. Just follow my lead. Bryce, he was kneading his hands, like visibly shaking. You can see it. And I whispered, listen, you are a steel-hearted son of a bitch. No one else can do what you do. That's it's something I, t I say to myself when I feel overwhelmed. <sighs> Repeat after me. I am a steel, but then Winters comes out with three mugs. He says I was gonna make tea, but I ran out of tea bags, so I had to improvise. I take a sip. It was just plain hot water. <laughs> How did he seem? Was he alert? Uh, he just, he seemed fine at first. Just sat there stirring his water with this little black twig. 
Then he snapped the twig in half and popped it into his mouth. And finally, finally, he says, all right, let's cut to the part where you saved my life. I say, hey, I like your style, Mr. Winters. I'm an agent, yes, but I am no friend of the publishing industry. What they have done to you is criminal. They treated you like some milking cow, a hack for hire, right? But we, us too, we see your work for what it truly is. And I gesture to Bryce, like, okay, your turn, kid. <laughs> He's staring at the floor. And Winter says, I, I, I know what comes next. You're gonna say, but now it's time to quit messing around and finish the next one, right? Because you got a big old case of blue balls, six years of it. You need relief, a happy ending, and I'm the only one who can stroke you off. You and a million others, go ahead, say it, man. Now, I wouldn't have put it like that, but I'm thinking, well, yeah, basically, that's exactly what you need to do. That is when Bryce pipes up, finally. His voice was all warbly, but he went through each book listing his favorite moment and where he was when he read it. Book one, when young Cassio Zook rises from his flooded nursery. Uh, he was in Cleveland with his parents before they divorced. And book two, when Cassio was sold into slavery and knows he'll never see his falcon again. Bryce was, I don't know, I forget where he was. Then in book three, when Cassio is reunited with his falcon, Bryce was- Wait, Did he do it for all 12 of the books? Every single one of them. It was, it was overwhelming and unbelievably dull. But winners, he seemed to be at least listening. But then Bryce goes on. He says that if Winners wrote book 13, he'd be the first to buy it. But if it never happened, he's just grateful for everything he's already received. Bryce says the last thing we wanted to do was to pressure him to write another book. In fact, that's what we'd come out here to tell him, that Winners owed his readers nothing, absolutely nothing. I wanted to throttle that kid. And Winters? He just sat there with his eyes closed. Eventually he sneezed into his hand and stared at the hand for a while. He finally says, it might interest you to know that I am still writing a little. I go, a little? Casually, but <sighs> my heart was pounding. He nodded and said, well, that's what writers do. They write every day. A thousand words some days. Writing's like a muscle. Okay, now wait, hold on. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. In the box as in, yeah, because this is gonna tie into the... So sorry. All right, so let's, what are we doing? A thousand words a day? Oh yeah, Richard Brown Winters was writing a lot, even half what he said, multiplied by the past six years. Oh, so I impressed him. I was worried I'd lose him if I looked too eager. But Bryce just comes out and asked how far along he was. Working on the ending, he said. 
the final chapter. I couldn't believe it. So I told him, I'd love to see that when you're done. <laughs> what did he say to that? Winner said, oh, it's going to be a while before I'm done. Once I finish the ending, I have to go back and, you know. Uh-uh, I didn't know. What, revise? Spell check? And he shook his head and said, no, 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 no. I've got to go back and write the rest of it. So we, yeah, Winters had been writing. He'd been writing the same 20 pages for years, writing them, scrapping them, starting over. Probably had a thousand versions of the final chapter. None of them were right, but he was close. He was very close. And once he got the ending, the rest pff, should come easy. It seems kind of counterintuitive. More like certifiably insane. Every day, every day, he did the same thing. To bed just after dark, wake up at dawn and take a long walk, then start chewing on the rope vine to get his brain moving. Rope vine? Yeah. Yeah, that stupid black twig he was chewing, gnawing on it like an old dog. He says it's a local sand weed. It's my doorway to, like, another world. Know what I mean? Did you know what he meant? No, I did not know what he meant. And I don't know if I mentioned it, but he still wasn't wearing a shirt, and there was this gamey odor coming from him. And it just it, oh, it became so painfully clear. He was done, withered, curdled. All of a sudden, I felt very tired. And I look over at Bryce, and he just seems... He just seems broken. Like ready to cry. I decided it was time just to cut our losses. I stood up and said, well, Mr. Winters, we should be going. Sorry to have bothered you. Then I asked if we could get our phones back. Winters went to fetch them from the freezer. He comes back and handed them to us and they were dripping wet. I hid them under the ice maker, he said, but I forgot the uh, freezer's not working. I tried to turn mine on, but the screen stayed dark. Then I tried Roger's, Bryce's. The phones were ruined. I said, fine, we'll get new phones. What I needed was a stiff drink at an airport bar. What I needed was out of this wasteland. We went out to the buggy, and there's Roger, asleep in the passenger seat with a blanket over him. But the driver's seat was empty. We called for Carla. I even honked the horn. But that little desert rat was nowhere to be found. Escape from the Oasis by Richard Brown Winters. Final chapter. Draft number six.
After the battle, when the sun finally rose on the desert valley, Cassio Zook surveyed the battleground, searching for his legions. From a toppled supply cart, he dug out a leather bladder full of palm wine. Not the finest brew, but it would do. But as Cassio looked around, what he saw slaked his thirst for jubilee. Yes, he had expected casualties. War without casualties was like a cockfight without cocks. Impossible. But this? The ground was festooned with corpses, both humanoid and mutant, struck through with pikes, charred with flame balls, all of them dead or dying on the barren sand where scabs of the old world still shone. Cassio would find no happiness here. He was a man without a home. His wife and daughters were dead. His falcon was dead. Hope was dead. Whatever happened to last words? Do we fall silent when we perish? Or do we perish because we have nothing more to speak? Or is our fraudulence ever-present, every word a harrowing, hollowing drumbeat of, like, you know, Chapter 3. Roger. Yeah, like a stone sort of. Right, right. Oat milk latte? Yeah. And a coffee? Thank you so much. Here's a couple of waters. Okay? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Get the kinks out there. Right. <clears throat> uh, so we're recording? Are we always going to be recording? Yeah. Okay. So, so what happened with the driver? Oh, I don't. I, I must have nodded off in the buggy because one minute she's right there next to me, plucking on that mouth harp of hers and, and trying to explain the difference between cougars and bobcats. I mean, I kept telling her I didn't care which was which. If I saw one, I was going to run. If it chased me and mauled me, then I'd know it was the kind that chases and mauls people. I, so one minute she's there, and the next minute, Bunny's jabbing me in the neck to wake me up. That jab told me all I needed to know. She wants to leave. Now. Uh, 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 I don't know why she's so mad at me. <laughs> I start to say to her, I knew that old Letch wasn't writing. But then I notice him heading right towards us, watching us with those squinty eyes. Huh. He kind of smiles and asks if we lost our driver, like it's something that happens all the time around here. It's a little creepy. I said, yeah, sure seems that way. Then I look out at the desert, which is now just shadowy cactus shapes, and all of a sudden, everything felt a lot creepy. 
you were scared of winters? Him, the desert, all of it. It's not, it's not my scene. You know, I, I try to ask Bunny what happened in there, what's wrong with this guy, but she cuts me off. Give it a rest, Roger. Just skip to the part where you say I told you so. I wasn't in the mood to gloat. I just wanted to get out of there. Look, I told everyone, she couldn't have gone far. Me and Bunny will search here in front. Bryce and Winters will go around back. Mostly, I just wanted to get away from the old guy. If he needed a human sacrifice, might as well be the kid, not us. So we start walking around the desert, calling out to Carla. Here, Carla! Come back to your dune buggy, Carla! Like she's a lost parakeet. But my voice just echoed into the shadows. I said, listen, Bunny, I'm serious. You think maybe the old man had something to do with her disappearance? How would that work? She says, when we were with him all the time. I'll tell you what happened. You had one job. Make sure the driver doesn't go anywhere and you failed miserably. I say, I thought my job was to shoot some photos out here. You know, glimpses of irrepressible life in a barren landscape. Well, how'd that go? And I don't answer her because we both know how it went. I was done. I'd been done for years. Couldn't bear to take another goddamn picture. But did she know that? <sighs> she cared so much about my photos. She was always seeing something and telling me that could be my next project. Dead pigeons, outdoor birthday parties, old people's ears. Always reminding me what a great talent I used to be. How much promise I had. And what a waste it would be for me to turn away from my gift. I knew the truth would crush her, so I kept up this sad charade. And so the vulvas that was... Sorry, vulvas? Your first ex exhibition? Volvos, like the cars. It was a commentary on the prevailing myth of suburban safety. Mm. I started thinking about finally telling her what I felt, you know, like really lay it all out on the line. When suddenly the floodlights in front of Winter's cabin all shut off. It was dark before, but now it's like we're blindfolded. There's no moon, just a big sky full of tiny stars. And the wind is starting to pick up. I say to Bunny, use your phone, the flashlight. And she's like, it doesn't work. What do you mean it doesn't work? And she says, Winters. He broke them. <laughs> well, that's when I knew we were done. Now, it's pitch black and we're trapped in the desert with a noted maniac. I mean, what were we thinking? There is that rumor about Winters. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, right. The Zodiac Killer. I mean, it sounds crazy, but uh, all I know is... He's destroyed our phones and probably eaten our driver, and now I'm in total darkness, pawing at the air. I call for Bunny, but she doesn't answer. Bunny? Bunny? Bunny! She hisses. Jesus, get a grip! You sound hysterical! The thing is, she's starting to sound hysterical. She says, if only you hadn't decided to take a goddamn nap! That's when I hear it. Like...
Bill could even make a noise like that. It was awful. And definitely not human. Chapter 4. Bryce. I was trying not to be, but come on, I couldn't help myself. I mean, me and Richard Brown Winters on a... Okay, I'll just say it, okay? On a quest. We were going to hunt down the driver, just the two of us, like Cassio Zook and his falcon tracking the old preacher who sold him into slavery. Except when we found her, we wouldn't, well, I mean, you know. Refresh my memory? Oh, yeah, he decapitates her. Then he stands over her headless body crying for all those years he lost. So I keep telling myself, just be cool. Don't gush. Don't ask a bunch of stupid questions. Don't piss him off. He's just a person, okay? But who am I kidding? He wasn't just a person. He was a god. A legend. On the flight out, I'd written down questions I wanted to ask him, but they just all seemed wrong now. Some were too specific, like at the end of book six, Cassio cuts off his thumb, but then in book seven, he has it again. Did he go to a healer between books, or was it a misdirection spell? Or else the questions were too broad, like... Um, do you ever start crying for no reason? Anyway, I just decided to keep quiet and try not to make a fool of myself. You know, Winters did let me be the one to hold the flashlight, which meant he liked me. Or didn't dislike me. At least he knew I existed, which was... Which was something, to me at least. So, where did you go? We just walked along the dunes behind his house. The wind blew, the stars shimmered. Bunny and Roger had probably found Carla already. Probably they were all waiting in the buggy, but I didn't want to turn back yet. Despite everything, this was basically the best day of my life. Like, literally. I'd met Richard Brown Winters and told him what his books meant to me. I didn't say I love you, like I worried I might. Really, I hadn't said anything too stupid. Not yet. But then a new thought crept in. What if he wanted me to talk? What if he was the shy one? So I said to hell with it and asked about Cassio Zook and the thumb. Is it a prosthetic or... He was quiet for a minute. And then he said, Maybe it grew back or something? You know, like a starfish. And I'm thinking, hold on, wait, is Cassio Zook like part mutant? Because, hold on, that would be a really big deal. He kind of sighed. Kid, it's all pretend. You know, make-believe, fiction. So I apologized. Then I apologized for apologizing. And then I... Don't know what happened. I just kept talking. I could not stop it. What did you say? Oh, you know, I told him it wasn't even my idea to come out here. All I wanted to do was tell him how his books sustained me. All day long, I sit behind a library reference desk in Dayton wishing I were somewhere else, closing my eyes and pretending I'm Cassio Zook and humanity's survival depends on what I do next. Like, 
If I don't say good morning to five people in the next 60 seconds, then me and the universe are doomed. My job, basically, is to Google stuff for people who are too lazy to do it for themselves. How many people live in Alaska? Did Hitler have any children? Can you get herpes from a petting zoo? Wait, can you? I don't know. Look, most of the time, I just make stuff up. But now I'm, like, just ranting to Winters, telling him about the time a lady left a rolled-up napkin on my counter. And when I unwrapped it, guess what? There was a tooth inside. Yeah, like a big one, a molar. How I hate video games. Can't play an instrument. Not good at anything. I have like three friends. They call me Bricycle. I hate it, but I'd never tell them. We play Scrabble on Saturday nights, and I drink too much, and I ride my bike home, and I fall asleep in my clothes. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. What am I saying? I... But do you know what I mean? Did you ever feel, you know... Stuck? Or trapped? You said all that? I guess I did. And Winters? Well, he stopped walking, and I just knew he was going to tell me to quit burdening him with my life story. Go back to Ohio, kid. Get a life. Cassio Zook is for little boys. But then he looked at me, cleared his throat, and spit into the sand. Finally, he spoke. Once there was a man named Richard Brown Winters, born and raised in Yuma, Arizona, son of a chicken farmer. He walked late, he talked late, he was often confused. Chapter 5, Richard Brown Winters. Once there was a man named Richard Brown Winters, born and raised in Yuma, Arizona, son of a chicken farmer. He walked late, talked late. He was often confused. As a boy, his only toys were a wooden spool and a rusty railroad nail. He called them spoolie and naily, and together they got into the most unlikely adventures. But then one day the boy cut his hand while roughhousing with naily and tetanus nearly killed him. When he recovered, his nervous parents let him outside for just an hour a day, long enough to walk to the town library and back. He read everything he could, Greek myths, the Brothers Grimm, Superman comics, and comprehended nary a word of it. He was not a bright child, unimaginative, stubborn, dependable. At some point, though, he got it into his thick head that he'd like to write books. The more he read, the easier it seemed. One word, then another word, then another. And they were all words he already knew. Words like horseshoe and rock and yellow. The idea became an obsession. He'd read something and say to himself, I could have written this if they hadn't written it first. They just took a whole bunch of words and put them in a certain order. He wrote adventure stories, war stories, spy stories, westerns, pulp romances. He sent them to publishers, but no one was interested. He kept at it for years, long after any sensible person would have given up to find a more reputable trade. Why was he so determined to become a writer in the face of such obvious evidence that he was talentless? 
He felt self-pity creeping over him. The ideas, which were never that good to begin with, stopped coming. He quit writing, quit eating, quit taking care of himself. One day he set out for a walk and decided that he wasn't going to return home without a best-selling idea, an idea that would change everything. He read somewhere that writing was all about asking the question, what if? He saw a car and thought, what if that car was purple instead of white? He saw a dog and thought, what if that dog started barking, but a bunch of quarters came out instead? He had nothing. He grew more and more despondent. He walked to the edge of the Mojave Desert and thought, what if it didn't matter if I lived or died? He kept walking into the desert. The world had forsaken him. Now he would forsake the world. He headed toward a great big nothing and walked until he collapsed. And when he collapsed, he crawled. And that's when he saw the towering flowers. Actually, it was just a few feet tall, but it was the only vegetation he had seen in miles. It was covered with tiny pink flowers, and orbiting the bush were hummingbirds, dozens of them, rising and falling to feed from the bush. He was starving and thirsty, and he reasoned that if it was good enough for the birds, then it was Good enough for him. He picked the tiny flowers and ate them. He broke off some of the branches and chewed on those too. And then the visions came. He found himself in a brutal post-apocalyptic world, wandering a bazaar full of mutants and other lost souls. He heard snatches of unfamiliar languages dead languages, languages that hadn't yet been born. He looked in a grimy mirror and saw that he was a boy again. And then a falcon came screaming from the sky and perched on his shoulder. Winters was sure he had poisoned himself and was going to die right there. But he awoke, and when he did, his head was startlingly clear. He hadn't poisoned himself. He'd discovered rope vine. And with it, he discovered the world that would subsequently be known as the Winter's Verse. He clawed his way back out of the desert and went directly to his desk. Nine days later, he had finished the first book, A Fork in the Path of Creation. He received a single offer from a tiny publishing house out of Tucson specialized in books on palm reading and numerology. The book sold 200 copies in the first few months, then 2,000 in the next few months. By the time his second book came out, the first had sold over a million. And it was all thanks to the rope vine. Just as the wider world was opening its gates to him, he withdrew from it. 
He bought 200 acres in a remote corner of the Mojave where the pink-flowered rope vine grew and built a tiny cabin. He lived alone in untroubled austerity. He refused all requests, movie deals, interviews, speaking engagements. He chewed rope vine every morning and wrote his books all day. He completed five books in eight years. His fans were legion and avid. They carried copies of his books wherever they went. A visionary, they called him. He saw himself merely as a travel writer, a reporter posting dispatches from a distant land. Every time he took rope vine, he brought something back. A new adventure, an echo from the past, a vision of the future. And then, nothing. Two years passed without a new Richard Brown Winters book. Then three years, five years. Countless Winters imposters emerged, men with three names, scribbling pathetic karaoke versions of his stories. Theories abounded. He was working on something monumental. He'd taken a fat deal to write for the movies. He was dead. But Richard Brown Winters was still alive. He still woke up at the same time every morning. He made a cup of tea and chewed the same rope vine that had made those books possible. He sharpened a dozen pencils. He did 50 push-ups. He sipped tea and sat in his favorite chair and waited. But nothing happened. In the afternoon, he chewed some more rope vine and waited. Still nothing. At night, he ingested what should have been a lethal amount of rope vine. He felt slightly nauseous, but that was all. Eventually, he had to accept it. The rope vine no longer worked. He'd built up a tolerance, an immunity. That brutal world full of warlords and sorcerers, full of concubines with hearts of gold, was like some distant fever dream. The day finally came when he had to admit that the door to the winter's verse had been closed to him forever. Chapter 6, Bryce. When he finished his story, we were silent again. Just the sound of the wind blowing. He seemed pretty defeated, honestly, but I found the whole thing, I don't know, comforting in a way. Like, I'm not the only one out here flailing and scrabbling, failing, feeling stuck. To me, though, his situation wasn't completely hopeless. I mean, maybe he just needed a break from the rope fine. That's what I said to him. What if you tried writing without it? And he goes, oh, what a brilliant idea. Amazing. Why didn't I think of that? Was he... Yeah, yeah, he was being sarcastic. 
He says, weren't you the one telling me that it's fine if I never wrote another word? I owe my readers nothing, you said. Remember? Absolutely nothing. Well, you did say that. That was only because I wanted him to like me. It wasn't actually fine at all. Then Winter shushed me. I told him I hadn't been talking and he shushed me again. And finally, I heard it. A sound. Screechy, high-pitched, like... Like something dying, maybe something killing something else. So we froze, eyes wide, and it came again, now louder. I was terrified, but Winters turned out and headed straight towards the sound. The Escape from the Deadly Oasis. Final chapter, draft, I don't know, we'll say 273. After the battle, when the sun finally rose on the desert, Cassio Zook looked around, and what he saw, it chilled him to the bone. Bodies, dead ones. He was freezing with the sight of all that blood and carnage. Except he was also very hot due to the fact that he was in the middle of a barren desert and the sun was rising. Cassio looked at the sun, not like directly into it, but kind of sideways, and it reminded him of a bloody fireball. Hot, bloody fire raining down from the heavens above, red skies at night, sailors delight and yet it was morning and there were no sailors for miles and there was nothing delightful about the sight before him god it's freaking hot out here out there i mean in the desert beneath the infernal sun the sun makes things happen while the moon just sits there dumb as always get rid of the moon and what would happen no ocean tides big deal who cares the end Chapter 7. Roger. Anything else? No. <laughs> so it was like a scream or a screech? Yeah. Yeah, like a screeching. A screaming screech, maybe? I asked Bunny if it sounded like a saw to her, like a distant power saw. I had this vision of Winters cutting up Carla, then cutting up Bryce. Bunny says it's not a saw, plus it's gone now. Then it started up again. I tried to link our arms together, me and Bunny, to try to look, you know, bigger. 
like we were one very wide person. I was kind of panicking, yeah. But she shook free and said that this was all my fault. All I could say was my fault. My fault? She said, well, at least you're able to admit it. Guess that counts for something. Then the sound came again, angrier. I whispered, please, can you just be quiet? It doesn't like it when we argue. It? Yeah, it. All at once, the whole absurd reality of our situation became clear. We were going to die out there. Whatever creature was making that sound was coming to kill us and eat us. It, It suddenly just felt inevitable. You know, like in the back of my mind, I always knew a sand monster would end up eating me. I'd be a comical footnote in Bunny's obituary. So I dug out my camera and I pointed it toward the sound. Great, Bunny says. You're going to photograph it to death. I waited. And when the sound came again, I aimed the flash and lit up the whole area. Nothing. No scaly monster or desert ghoul, just sand and some withered cacti. We inched toward the sound. Everything was quiet for a moment, but then footsteps behind us. I whirled around and hit the flash. It was Winters with Bryce right behind him, looking like he just woke up. Guess they were following the same sound. So Winters... Hadn't chopped up, Bryce. No, Bryce, Bryce seemed fine, as far as I could tell. I mean, I wasn't even thinking coherently anymore. The four of us huddled together and crept toward the sound. It was close now, mournful, almost beseeching. I flashed again. Bunny pointed toward the sound and said she saw something on the ground. I flashed one more time, and she bent down and picked it up. Picked what up? It was Carla's goddamn mouth harp. The wind had been whistling through it. Wait, is that even possible? Yeah, well, of course it's possible. It happened. And right past the harp, curled up next to a little shrub, was Carla herself. Eyes closed, shivering, gripping a tattered old dog leash and looking tweaked out of her mind. Wait, a dog leash? Yeah. We all just stared at her for a second, totally confused. And then her eyes open. She starts whipping the leash in the dirt, looks right at me and shouts, Be gone! Be gone, you vile demon! We all looked at Winters. He had his thumbs and his suspenders and this grim expression on his face. He said, Well... Looks like your friend found my stash. Chapter 8, Carla. Oh yeah, my steeds. I close my eyes and... Do you want to take a little break or... No. (sighs) Finally. 
dog leash? Listen, listen. My steeds, they were the finest two steeds in the whole ruined world. Hell, they might have been the only two left. And I was pushing them hard because my wagon was full of ice. Wait, wait, your wagon? I'd wrapped it all in, in palm fronds, but it was still melting away. I could, I could hear it dripping through the slats, like a, a trail of gold coins. I mean, my seeds, they had names like you and me, but if you've said them out loud, they'd chase you in your dreams for the rest of your life. They were vengeful like that. And pretty. And fast, too. But they needed to be faster because my goddamn ice was melting and I, I knew the six armies were gathering in the desert at dawn to ambush and eternally decapitate Cassio Zook. It did seem fair to me, but what did I know? I didn't make the rules. I was just a simple merchant. And I was about to hit the jackpot. I mean, anytime you get that many men in the desert, you know some of them will be needing ice. It's just simple mathematics. Um, so this was like a hallucination no. or? The, the night was cold and dark and I, I had a feeling I was being followed. I'd stolen the ice from one of the underground cities. I guess they worshiped it or used it in their religious ceremonies. And they tended to torture and kill whoever messed with it. I, I could hear them calling to each other in the dark, speaking their ruthless ice tongue. Laka, they called. Laka, Laka. It sounded like no word I'd ever heard. It probably meant like killer in their language. You know, kill this lovable merchant with 200 kilos of stolen ice. Then I feel their frigid paws on me, and I shout, Gone! Uh, Heads off your purse! Whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. Are you okay? Yes, sir. Come on, man. Um. And then someone is whispering, What the hell's going on with you? And I sort of come to, I, I open my eyes, which are all crusted with sleep spunk, and I'm crouched on a patch of sand, and I'm holding a dog leash. I'm pretty sure I pissed myself. And instead of ice worshippers caving my skull in with a pickaxe, I'm surrounded by those boring lumps I drove out here. The old jackal and her sidekicks, the cameraman, the sad-eyed kid, plus a dude in suspenders. That would be Richard Winters. I guess. I mean, he looked like an old scarecrow. And he and the rest of them are staring at me. They're all full of questions. You know, is she conscious? Is that foam around her mouth? What's that smell? Blah, blah, blah. They seem worried, but mostly mad. <sighs> the seeds are gone, and so is my wagon. It's just me and these four meat puppets and that shrub. Winter's rope find. Say what now? The rope find, the special plant, the one Winter's... Oh, yeah, yeah. I've always heard it called snake tail. My grandma's taught me about it. Said I got you really, really high. She used to do it in high school. She said that we'd sit around munching on it, feeling like they were the last people in the world. But then I guess some asshole came and bought up all the land and kept it for himself. That's what she said. She said she'd still keep doing it if she could find any. You've never tried it before? Nope, but I was ready to try it again. One minute, I'm hauling ass with my steeds. And the next I'm sitting there looking at these mopey skulls. Winters, he shakes me again. He asks what I saw, and so I tell him that sees the eyes, everything. He pulls out a pad and starts scribbling notes. It's like interrogating me. What do you ask? 
you know, like, what do the armies look like? What was Cassio wearing? And I'm, I'm trying to explain. I'm not totally sure what a tunic is, but I think it was a tunic. And then the kid turns to Winters. Yeah, that's got to be Book 13, says the Oasis, the Six Armies. But so how does she know? You were inside Book 13, the one that hadn't been written yet. I don't know. Maybe. And so anyone who took it could have written those books. The rope vine was doing all the work. I guess. So the kid sat on that for a while, trying to wrap his head around it. And he looks at me, then back at the bush, then back to Winters. Finally, he says, didn't you say the rope vine stopped working after the fifth book? And Winters is like, uh, yeah, sure, I guess. And then the kid says, uh, there were seven more after that, so who wrote those? And Winters says, I did, I did. He was hiding something. I, I was only half, you know, conscious, but even I could see that. He kicked at the dirt for a while, and he says, uh, look, it's complicated. It's a long story. You all should probably be getting back on the road, back to civilization, right? But you didn't. We weren't going anywhere. No. All eyes were on the old man. He broke a twig off the shrub and stared at it. Then he sighed and threw it in the dirt. Fine, he said, fine. I'll tell you. Chapter 9 Richard Brown Winters The rope vine stopped working. Richard Brown Winters' career was over. He spent his fruitless days puttering around the wasteland that he'd called home for the past 12 years. It wasn't even land, just a bunch of shifting sand and angry cactuses and lizard turds. He hadn't written a word in years, and he was feeling much the same way he felt when he had walked into the desert years before, completely hopeless. It was on a day like this, while walking along a two-lane road, that he saw a man in the distance. The man didn't have a shirt on. He was zigzagging across the asphalt, gesturing and muttering. He stopped and turned when he saw Winters approaching. He was a ragged specimen, cut off jeans, knees scraped and bloody. He smelled like sweet liquor, sweat, a whiff of vomit. He said he'd been in the back of a truck on the way to Phoenix sharing a bottle with two other guys, and then all of a sudden he was walking in the middle of the desert. The man sat down on the sandy shoulder and started crying. He said he couldn't even remember why he was going to Phoenix. Then he laid his head down and fell immediately asleep. Winters took him back to the cabin. 
He wasn't sure where the impulse came from. He'd long given up the desire for company and he'd never been a charitable sort. Five years ago, when the work was going well, he would have turned around the moment he saw the man raving in the road. But now Winters carried him inside and the man slept on his couch for 18 hours. The next morning, the man showered and shaved and Winters let him borrow some clothes. They ate lunch and he told Winters about himself. He was 51 years old, divorced three times, an alcoholic, a human tumbleweed. When he woke up and saw a bearded madman standing over him, he thought he was finally done for. He asked Winters what his story was, and Winters said, there's not much to tell. I live here by myself. I used to write books for a living. Looks like I'm gonna need to find a new line of work. The man looked at him and said, someone paid you to write books? Winters went to his bedroom and got the latest one into the lost tunnel, four years old at this point. Dang, the man said, I thought you were a crackpot, but this is like a real book. What's it about? Winters could barely remember. He shrugged and said, some tunnel everyone's trying to find. It's full of magic or something. The man read the dust jacket, sniffed the whole thing, and then opened to the first page. Six hours later, he'd finished chapter one. By then it was dark, so he spent another night on the couch. The next morning, he started on chapter two. It didn't take long for the two men to settle into a regular rhythm. The visitor worked on the cabin during the day, took trips to town for supplies. Winters woke up at dawn to tend to the rope vine bush and then sat at his typewriter for the rest of the day, staring at his hands and wondering what he was going to do. The man finally finished the first book and asked for another. He fell asleep that night with Song of the Turquoise Falcons played open on his chest. Winters watched him sleep, the pages gently fluttering with each soft snore. He knew the time had come. The next morning, the man awoke to an empty cabin. He called out a few times, looked into the yard, and then knocked on the door of Winter's bedroom. There was no answer, so he entered. Next to the typewriter was a letter and a pile of black twigs. He was giving up, the letter said. He was tired of banging his head against the typewriter every day waiting for visions that wouldn't come. If the man liked the book so much, maybe he should give it a try. If so, chew some of this, put the paper in like this, and start typing. And so I sat at the desk. Wait, I? Yeah, the sad guy on the road, that was me. I thought it was pretty obvious. It's just the, the third person, you threw me off. It's called suspense, ever heard of it? Okay. So I sat down and picked up one of the twigs. I sniffed at it and then took a nibble. Didn't taste too bad, so I ate the whole thing. And the next day, there was a stack of typewritten pages on the table. The prose was pretty uh, rough. 97% crap, to be honest. 
But I kept at it. I reread the first five books, and then with the help of a thesaurus and some rehashed plot lines, I, I finally finished Winter's long-awaited sixth masterpiece. I called it Bring on the Action. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, well, the, the publisher changed the title. Something, uh, something about a sword, I think, or a song, I can't remember. I do remember that the critics hated it. Same with the next one, Bring on Some More Action, which was changed to um, the, the Bloody Crystals of Something Something. Readers wondered why Cassio Zook kept having flashbacks from Vietnam. Turns out there wasn't any Vietnam, the war or the country in the world of the books. But I kept on working, and bit by bit, I got the hang of it. My third try was the thrust of destiny. That's where I killed off Cassio Zook's stupid falcon and introduced Old Neck, the immortal buzzard, who became his new sidekick, kind of like a post-apocalyptic Jiminy Cricket. Critics called it decent and more or less coherent. I felt something like pride for the first time in years. By my fifth book, hell, I'm just going to say it, I had outdone the original winners. Less boring backstory, more forward motion, more fighting, more mutants, more sex, more sexy mutants. The readers loved it, and they loved me. Or, you know, they, they loved Richard Brown Winters, at least. I was flying high. Until? <laughs> you know, same old story. More and more rope vine, fewer and fewer pages. I've been trying to write the ending first. I figure if I know where I'm supposed to end, then maybe I, I can just plot a course there. But nothing works. I mean, I saw exactly how it went with the first winters. I knew what the future held, but somehow I never believed it would happen to me. There's a word for that. Hubris? Stupidity. Simple, arrogant stupidity. I threw away my past life to become Richard Brown Winters, and now Richard Brown Winters was no more. Cassio Zook and the never-ending Oasis, last chapter. This is it. This will be the one. After the battle, when the sun finally rose across the bloody dunes, Cassio Zook realized it was all a dream. Yes, he was actually dreaming this whole time. There were no legions. No desert, no 20-year war. It was just him, alone, in his nice queen-sized bed, with soft sheets and morning birdsong and the smell of orange blossoms. His house was air-conditioned, and 
His refrigerator was full. Apple juice, eggs, watermelon, little individual puddings. He could spend the entire day in bed if he wanted, and no one would hassle him for a single goddamn thing. Just him and the pudding. So much pudding. Chapter 10, Roger. And thus concluded the tale of the saga of the made-for-TV movie of the life of Richard Brown Winters. Or, I mean, the lives of Richard Brown Winterses. So, yeah, an old man before us rubbing his eyes. Were those tears? Was he crying? Oh, God, he was. No reason to cry just because you're an imposter. We're all imposters. But Bunny, she just comes out and asks him, so how about your successor? His successor? Yeah. Winters says, hold on now, I haven't thrown in the towel just yet. And he tells us about how a few days ago he was chewing some rope vine. And he closes his eyes and he sees very clearly a face. A quick flash of a woman's face. Just a flash. He said he thought the rope vine might start working again. He just had to wait this out. Do you think he really believed that? <sighs> Maybe he wanted to believe it? He and Bunny went back and forth a few times. Her telling him he's done, him saying, I don't feel like I'm done. I'll never forget the look on his face when he said it. I don't feel like I'm done. He was just a big old tragic baby. What got me was the delusion. You know, he'd seen up close how lonely and broken and useless the first winters had become. And still, he looked at that pile of twigs and that sad typewriter and thought, but I'm different. This is the life for me. You seem to take this personally. Well, yeah, obviously. Just look at me. That's what I told him. Hey, look who you're talking to, Ricky. I used to carry that flame. From the moment I woke up until the moment I went to bed, I was making art. My breakfast was art. My outfits were art. The way I hailed a cab. My photographs were like trailers for the movie of my life. And then one day I'm making toast, waiting for it to pop up, and I thought... This is not art. Then I got dressed, went out and hailed a cab, and the cab just kept on going. It all fell like a house of cards, and inside was just me. And every morning since, I wake up, I look in the mirror, and I say, Jesus Christ, you again? You, you said all that? Yeah. <laughs> when I finished, Winters, he kind of sniffled up some snot and stared at me all seasick looking and said, but if I'm not this, then what am I? I don't even have a driver's license. I told him, I get it. It's scary, man, but just consider the alternative. Me. I mean, I dream of putting that stupid camera down. Half the time, there isn't even film in it. If I could just hand this thing off to someone else and ride into the sunset... I'd do it in a heartbeat. But look at you, man. You're healthy. 
You probably still have a few good years left. Take a trip, a real trip. Go to Hawaii or something. The second you leave this place, you're going to be glad you did it. I guarantee it. You'll wonder why you didn't do it sooner. When I finally finished my little sermon, I realized Bunny was staring at me. I expected disgust, but this was more like uh, surprise, empathy, admiration. I Well, it was unfamiliar, but not unpleasant. And she took my hand and held it just for a second. And, you know, Bunny's always been weird about holding hands. She says it makes her feel like a primate, like she's at a nature show. But still, there we were holding hands for the first time in I don't know how long. And how about Winters? Well, he was quiet for a while and I didn't know what he was gonna do. Cornered animals and all that. And finally he sighed and said, I would like to maybe go see a castle sometime. Like in books, you know, but a real one. Buddy told him there were countries out there full of castles, England, um, um, Spain? Yeah, lots of them. Then he said he'd also like to maybe have sex again. And Bunny said, sure, you could probably arrange that somehow. For now, all he had to do was let go. Winters swallowed hard and finally nodded. They went into the cabin and found some cooking sherry and brought it outside. Each of us got a thimbleful and toasted the former Richard Brown Winters. And we all sat there for a bit, just listening to the wind howl against the house. Until Carla piped up. All right, so since everyone's thinking it, I'll just come out and say it. Where do I start? Chapter 11. Carla. Yeah, I was ready to do it. I mean, I didn't see anyone else there who actually knew how to survive in the desert. Who could get water from a cactus, feed for a week on scorpion larvae. Plus, I took typing in middle school. I could tell a story. But Bunny just, she hushed me. I mean, she hardly even looked at me. Which, I mean, okay, I didn't want the job anyway. I was just, I was just trying to be helpful. All of a sudden, I'm over it. I'm done. I'm missing my cat, my breakfast nook. You have a breakfast nook? Yeah. So I say, my buggy seats four people max, and there are five of us. So somebody has to stay behind. Apparently, it isn't going to be me, so y'all need to figure it out now. Bunny's staring at Bryce. Actually, everybody is. And Bryce? He kind of looks around nervously, and then he goes, uh, what are you looking at? Guys, are you, I mean, you don't think that, what? No, no way. Are you, are you kidding? That doesn't even, on and on like this. Just all kinds of excuses. He's job at the library. He had a dentist appointment in a few days. He forgot his allergy medications. And plus, who was he to take over for Richard Brown Winters? It wouldn't be right. He was just a fan. A nobody. 
Chapter 12. Bunny. Sorry, but I have to. Oh, we got the phones. I'm sorry, you guys. Uh, all right, I'm coming in. Here's what I said to Bryce. Okay. I said, listen, you shut your little mouth and listen to me for a minute. Have you ever eaten at a restaurant with one of those lobster tanks in the dining room? Yeah, of course. No, that's what I asked Bryce. Oh. <laughs> I said, Bryce, have you ever seen one of those tanks? The water's brown and filthy, and the lobsters have rubber bands on their claws, and they're stacked on top of each other. But those lobsters still think they're making choices. They think they're going places. Somewhere in their little brains, there's a formless notion that they're still in the ocean, running free with the sharks and stingrays. I'm not sure that's how lobsters... That's you when you go back home. Where is it? Ohio, the library. You got your desk there, your favorite water fountain. I get it. Sure, you're crammed in a tank with a hundred identical losers, but it's safe, it's cozy. Out here, though, this is the ocean. Okay, yeah, it's a little unpredictable, maybe even a little dangerous, but this is where you're meant to be because you're not a lobster, Bryce. I've been watching you. You're a kraken. You hear that? That's your inner roar. That's the kraken inside you. Escape. Please, by Richard Brown Winters. Draft never. Battle. Sun. Desert. Cassio Zook standing there. Sad. Wounded. Mutants. Victory. Tears. Bones. Hair. Wind. Sand. Blood. Sand. Blood. What else? No more. No more. No more. Chapter 13. Richard, Richard Brown Winters. We said our goodbyes and I stood out front and watched Carla's dune buggy crest the hill. Winters turned around and tipped his hat, kind of wistful. I mean, he was a hundred yards away and the buggy had kicked up a bunch of dust, but I imagine he looked wistful. So, I guess you said yes. I mean, I put up a fight, but... Everyone else seemed to think it was the most obvious thing in the world. Me. The next... <laughs> I don't even know. Winter showed me where the silverware was. One fork, one knife, one spoon. He showed me how to turn off the propane and how to flush the well if the water was coming out gray. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said he'd be watching over me just like Cassio's grandfather. I said, but 
Didn't his grandfather turn evil in book eight after the whole thing with the inverted crystals? Winters just shrugged and then they all left. The buggy cleared the hill and disappeared, but still I didn't move. I decided that as soon as I couldn't hear the engine anymore, then I'd go inside. The buggy's rumble echoed through the valley. But then I realized the noise was no longer in the air, but in my head. So finally I went inside. Still felt like a stranger in that house. Winters had left a little starter pile of rope vine on the wooden desk. I sat down and stared at it for a while. I picked up one of the twigs and immediately put it back down. I rolled a fresh sheet of paper into the typewriter and sat there thinking about Bunny and Roger, Carla and Winters. I mean, the man who was Winters. I didn't even know his name. I imagined them as four curving lines, their paths fanning out from this cabin into some distant future. Carla, driving tours through the desert, telling anyone who'd listen about this magic shrub, all the books she might have written. Bunny and Roger, on a long flight home, bickering for hours about who was the rightful user of the armrest between them. And I saw the man who was Winters, freed from his work, stepping back into the world. I saw him touring a castle in some English town, learning about medieval sleeping habits, staring at a bunch of shiny crowns behind glass. I pictured him sitting by himself outside that castle, eating an ice cream cone, feeling a little lost, feeling a little found, noticing a boy on a bench reading a Richard Brown Winter's novel, and leaning towards him and whispering, I wrote that, and winking, and the boy responding not with admiration, but with the slightly sad look you'd give an old man who just told you he invented laughter. And still I didn't chew the rope fine. Then their past started to warp a little. I still saw winners, but he and Cassio Zook became one, the aging hero stranded in an oasis, surrounded by desert, trying and failing to imagine a way out. Carla was approaching. The dune buggy was now her two steeds charging into battle. Bunny and Roger, they were there too. A pair of conjoined twins, two brains and one body hunched over the map, debating strategy, plotting moves and counter moves. And finally the librarian, guardian of the ancient texts, his name already beginning to fade from memory. I saw the sun finally rise across the dunes but they were not bloody and Cassio Zook and his legions were not vanquished. Once again, he had outsmarted the seven armies. He had transformed into someone else, a harmless old man and was ferried out of the desert and back into the world. His story would not end there. In the face of hopeless odds, what can a single person do? They can lay their weapons down, they can fight and die, or they can dream a new person into existence. I stared at that pile of rope fine. I decided I wasn't going to use it today. Maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe never. Everything was clear enough for me already. I saw each of the 12 books opening like doors and flooding the room with their light. I saw everything that had ever happened or would happen.
Richard Brown Winters. He was born, and he died, and he was born again. In that cabin in the middle of the desert, I brought his fingers down onto the typewriter, slowly and softly, like playing a piano. I felt grooves worn into the keys from the other winters before me. I knew where each of the letters needed to go. I started typing. Final Chapters of Richard Brown Winters Written by Kevin Moffat and Eli Horowitz Directed by Eli Horowitz Starring Daryl Britt Gibson Bobby Cannavale Catherine Keener Parker Posey and Sam Waterston Executive Producer Mimi O'Donnell Senior Producer Katie Pastor Associate Producer Julie Bolesky Recording, sound design, and mix by Jonathan Roberts. Additional engineering by Stephen Tejeda. Music supervision by Liz Fulton. Score by Calexico. The final chapters of Richard Brown Winters is a Spotify original podcast and a Gimlet production. <laughs>